Vox Populi. Vox Populi. The voice of the occasionally interested people. A political talk show for people who don't spend a lot of time talking politics. The only agenda. Understand, inform, and entertain. Now, here's your host, Sean Astin. Hello, hello. Are we getting a late start? It's 12.04. <gasps> I'm so sorry. You guys are just sitting there waiting. Is he going to talk about it yet? Where is he? Where is he? I just found out from the head of the network, from Frank. I call him Frank Army. What should I call him? Frank Kramer. Frank Kramer. Frank Kramer. Frank, Kramer. <laughs> Frank with Frank's Army, head of the Toad Hop Network, just said to me as I was walking into the studio, your numbers are exploding. Ladies and gentlemen, we are making talking about boring stuff cool. It's awesome. I'm very excited about that. Uh, this is our fourth episode, everyone. Hello, I'm Sean Astin. I am your host of Vox Populi, voice of the occasionally interested people here on the Toad Hop Network. We're going to have a call-in number for you, 888-520-4374. I have got to say, I am unbelievably excited about this episode. Because uh, instead of talking about a, um, a, a sort of flash hot button issue, um, gay marriage or uh, responding to the, the you know, dynamic political ads of, uh, of the Romney campaign and, and uh, Bain's capital and all that, we're talking about something that is the core bedrock uh, foundation, sort of, of how we, and when I say we, I mean we the people, do business through our representatives in government. 
um, you know, we sit and we talk about, well, higher taxes this and lower taxes that, and you got to get spending under control. And, and we talk about all the, you know, well, the defense budget, you know, you, you, the appropriations here and the continuing resolution there, and are they going to raise the debt ceiling? And, you know, it's kind of, there's so much there. And what you really want to do at a certain point is say, you know, stop the music, stop the madness, and let me, like, try and get my head around the numbers of what we're talking about. And it's really hard to do because the numbers are um, large in the trillions. We actually have a little uh, slide we'll put up later on that shows the uh, – can you hear me in there, Mac? Yeah, okay, cool. We're going to put a little uh, figure up that shows the what, what trillions look like, looks like um, in one of those rotating – Things. But it's also it's also really complex. There's a lot of people, you know, when you when you make a budget, you know, with your family, you sit down and you say, well, how much are we going to spend on clothes? How much are we going to spend on food? How much? Well, we can eat out a little bit less, and then it's going to cost more. And you know, but what if your what if your your job you get a demotion or a promotion, and how's that going to affect? That, just with your family, you know that there you can't predict the behavior 100 percent because you know life happens. So how is the federal government supposed to get its head around its spending and its saving? And so there's a uh, there's a place. I kind of feel like it's, uh, you know, Oz. <laughs> I don't know if there's a song for this one, but called the Congressional Budget Office. The Congre- Say it with me, everybody. The Congressional Budget Office, the CBO. You always hear in political campaigns the uh, the or or in debates the political. Well, even the even the CB the uh, the nonpartisan CBO uh, scored this uh, you know plan that we're putting forward and and so on and so forth. So they 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 talk about it all the time. It's a much maligned place, but it's also a place that is relied on. What do they do at the Congressional Budget Office? Feel free, feel free, Mac, if you can throw up the uh, the homepage. I'm not sure if you can do that. Or not? No, you can't do that. All right. Well, I'm going to describe it with, in great detail. Uh, <laughs> the uh, where I'm looking here. They they um, budget outlook analysis about. Here we go. Our agency. Uh, all right. I'll wait uh, for people to call in and tell me when they think the agency, the CBO, was founded. Eight 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 five two zero four three seven four. Okay, you're taking too long. I'm going to tell you anyway. The the agency, which, by the way, it is a federal government uh, agency. There's a building, and it is within walking distance of the Capitol. You know, I love politics, but until last night when I Googled this, or one of the followers actually sent me a thing, I, I, uh, I didn't know that it was an actual. I just it kind of existed out there. I didn't know what they were. The CBO. I'm like, is it in the basement? Because I've been through the uh, the different congressional, you know, uh, congressional buildings, and, and I didn't see it. So there it is. It's the only congressionally associated building, congressional building that doesn't have an underground tunnel to the Capitol. Uh, in the dead of winter, they make these bean counters walk in the uh, blinding snow to uh, deliver their reports that have been asked for by the different. Um, Agencies. Okay, so let me let me just read you the overview from the Congressional Budget Office. Since its founding in 1974, the Congressional Budget Office has produced independent, nonpartisan, timely analysis of economic and budgetary issues to support the congressional budget process. Yeesh. Congressional budget process. Do you, is it me or do you have an image of a, like a go kart with one leg off and a kid screaming down, going towards the, a freeway? Ah! <laughs> That's the congressional budget office process, folks. The, the, the congressional budget. Okay, so um, the agency's long tradition, long tradition, 
All right, it was founded in 1974. It's a year younger than my little brother, Mackenzie. Three years younger than me. Uh, so not that old. I thought when uh, I was looking at it that the CBO was, uh, you know, must have been like a Hamilton thing or, you know, one of the Jeffersonian inclusion into the, the process. Uh, you know, I'm not sure if they had checkbooks back then. But but anyhow, um, so we'll c- continue this little definition, the reports. Um, so they, they uh, each year, dozens of reports and hundreds of cost estimates the economists and policy analysts produce those products each year. The CBO's analysis do not make policy recommendations. Of course, if you look at something that says you're taking in a nickel and you're spending $4 trillion, and if you keep doing that, your entire civilization is going to go to hell in a handbasket. Uh, Mac, did you grab that phone? Oh, missed it. Oh, call back. So, um... <laughs> I get excited. I'm loving my host duties, by the way. All right, so what do we have here? Uh, yeah, so but they're not they're not technically supposed they're they're independent. They are independent. Um, some people would really question that, and others would question uh, the veracity of what they do, um, the the accuracy of what they do, and their methodology. Uh, one one thing that I can say is their budget per year is over forty million dollars. It's like forty four million dollars, um, according to them. But they're the CBO, so they, can they hide it? No, no, they're not the Treasury. They're just a a group that's there to provide advice. And you've got uh, this. I when I read on here, I thought it said seven hundred. Uh, our age, our policy, our work, our where were they? Um, I thought it said they had 750, but an interview I did earlier, which you will hear shortly, uh, they said like two, like almost 300 um, analysts. You know, all, most of whom, 290 of them, have uh, post degrees, you know, advanced degrees in economics and other kind of uh, disciplines. But that's what their thing is. They they uh, they get their 40 million dollars. Uh, no idea really how they spend all that money. Um, I mean, I suppose if you're going to send somebody into the field to see how much jelly beans cost, you'd want to. You want to make sure you had the best ride out there. Uh, but they come down and they, and they produce these things. Another interesting fact that I learned about the CBO. They have uh, certain products that they deliver every year as a part of their mandate. Uh, and I'm going to figure out what that is and tell you. But uh, a most recent, to begin with the most recent, focus on a specific topic. All right, so they have, um, oh, God, they're just mind-numbingly boring to read Senate Amendment 2122 in the nature of a substitute to Senate 3187, the Food and Drug Administration Safety... Oh, my gosh. Okay. Um, The economics of reducing the fiscal restraint that is scheduled to occur in 2013. So we're going to hear a lot of of, uh, what's being argued right now um, in terms of their product. But what they also do is these cost estimates... And the cost estimate, you know, if you implement this piece of legislation that's written or contemplated, uh, then how much is it going to cost and what's it going to do to the economy? And, you know, so the interesting thing to me is that, though, you know, you think who can order it? Can I call up and say I'd like a, a burger, you know, I'd like a Big Mac, fries, and a, a cost estimate on the uh, from the CBO? Like, who who gets to do it? From what I read, the uh, head of the parties, or the the uh, you know the ranking members of the parties and uh, of the minority, and then the, the the congressional leadership in both parties, and then the committee 
chairs and the subcommittee chairs can request a cost estimate. So just picture how that works. You know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, the the congressman walks out of a thing and, and looks at his staff and says, Tommy, go and get me a cost estimate from CBO. We need to find out what this is going to cost. Yeah. And so Tommy goes running down over to the budget office. You know, hopefully they're not closed. You don't want Tommy sitting out there going, oh, man, my congressman is going to need that information now. But they then get together, the staffs, the staff of the CBO and the staff of the congressional chairperson who's requested it. The... Oh, look at that. I see who's calling there. It's Brett. It's my old buddy Brett. I bet he's got a thought on this for me. Um, but anyhow, it's a process. I think they don't uh, do a cost estimate for anyone who asks. I think they sit down and they try and refine what the questions are and, and really understand what the legislation is. I don't really know. I don't understand like in what uh, phase of the legislation – you know, it's it's ready for that. Do they do they get one of those cost estimates before they start doing it? Do they? It's just a really interesting uh, thing to consider because there's this whole chain of events that has to unfold in order to be able to get the guidance that you may want to take or may want to um, get rid of. So let me. Um, so that's that. Uh, the oh, the other thing is. Um, Oh, you know, I'll try and play some sound from that. I'm so excited because I did all this research and my mind is agog with the possibilities. And I like it because even though it's totally amorphous, I mean, there's so many variables, the interest, the debt, the unemployment rate, the, uh, you know, all these, these, uh, GDP and GIP and, you know, the acronyms just coming out of the, uh, W-O-Z-U, you know, <laughs> there's all this stuff, but, but at least it's, it's tangible in the sense that, uh, we're not talking about social issues that are really, really hard to get people to agree on. This is going to be hard to get people to agree on, but at least we can um, – well, maybe we can't even do that. What I would like to see is when we disagree on the facts and figures, when politicians point out that the OMB, Office of M- Management Budget, whatever, the, the, the White House's uh, wing, of the, they've got their own way of analyzing the budget, and the CBO, and then you've got the Treasury Department, you've got lots of different departments that everybody's kind of throwing facts out there, and politicians and their campaigns cherry-pick which uh, data they want to use to support their, uh, their, their point of view. And so they will, um, you know, when you talk about being in the... Uh, uh, the pocket of this industry or that industry, you know, it's it's sort of hard to f- imagine anymore that there are these smoky backfilled rooms or back smoky filled rooms or whatever where where things are happening. But when you look, the numbers are really interesting to to grapple with. So we're gonna we're gonna explore some of those. Look at some graphs. Um, I'm gonna take a call right now from uh, from Brett, who's my friend from last week. Really smart guy. Uh, and let's see what, what Brett has to say. And I'm going to do a little bit of um, administrative stuff while we're talking, too. So, uh, Brett, are you there? Good afternoon, sir. Good. Oh, brother. We're going to start with the sir thing again? <laughs> it's because yes, I'm wearing a jacket, right? If I take the jacket off, are you still going to call me sir? Uh, until you give me a reason to disrespect you, yeah. Oh, my goodness gracious. Uh, all right. Well, let's, uh, then, then call me sir for Pete's sake. I will be, I'll be respected. Uh, I'll tell you what, we have a beer together. Sometimes I'll stop calling you sir. Uh, does it, okay, I like that. Uh, I'm buying. <laughs> unless you say something I totally disagree with, and then you're buying. Or the first round, or the second round. I don't know. Uh, okay, so are you... Um, Next time you come to Jacksonville. <laughs> Jacksonville, Florida. Yes, sir. Wow, gators. Scary. Mm, nah, they're out in the swamps. 
Um, sorry, sorry. Shouldn't you be working? What's going on? There's school children, depending on your uh, your work with the computers, right? I'm, I'm at work, actually. Oh, great. Then I better let you talk so you can get back. It's, nah, nah, it's no big deal. What do you think I'm about... management. I don't do anything. <laughs> wow. So uh, so I guess we should start with uh, the budget that the, uh, the uh, uh, CBO has to work with. you think it's about right? you think they need a little bit more to get their job even more right? Or you think they can do more with less? What, what would you do with their budget? Well, the problem with the CBO and, and, and a problem with pretty much anybody taking them too much to heart is the CBO is kind of like being a sniper in the back of a Humvee with bad springs going over some uh, speed bumps while trying to hit a guy in a boat 600 yards out in heavy. I'm going to have to come up with, a, with the metaphor police on this one, but go ahead. Keep going. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a moving target. And, and, you know, they first of all, they do it's baseline budgeting. Um, so all of their assumptions are made by, you know, if we continue to get X amount of revenue and we continue to spend at X amount of rate, and all of the factors that go into whatever it is that we're about to make our our estimate about with all the statistics that we're going to pull from don't change, then this is the amount that we think that well, we're going to Well, all right. I mean, what's wrong with that? Um, because all of them change. <laughs> Always. Constantly. Yeah, but you can't, you can't, you know, you have to have... You have to be able to operate in an environment where... That's true. There's there's nothing wrong with it as long as you remember it's an estimate. The problem that ends up happening is it gets treated like it's gospel. And the the CBO constantly... It does? I think they would be thrilled if it got treated like it was gospel. No, it does quite frequently. It just depends on whether or not they're trying to prove an argument or not. And and either party does it. Nobody has a, a cornered market on taking bad CBO data. They're constantly revising their estimates. And the estimates are frequently used as proof that such and such happened. And, and I, I give you an example. If you want to know what we spend, you don't look at the CBO. You go to the Treasury Department. The Treasury Department puts out a month, monthly report that tells you exactly how much revenue came in and exactly how much spending went out every month. And yet you frequently... Yeah, but if you're, if you're sitting there, particularly with the debt numbers, it's like unbelievably, you know, catastrophic or, you know, you know magnitude. Yeah, they're are big large. numbers. So... so uh, you know, you want to be before you make a decision. You, you've got four hundred and something people in the Congress and a hundred senators, and you got a president. You've got all these different people. Everybody in the country's got an opinion on it. Before you say, "Let's go ahead and allocate," you know, th- how many tr- you know a trillion to the Defense Department or whatever the defense budget is. You know, the, the problem I believe there is not so much with the CBO estimate as the fact that lately it seems within the last, especially the last two administrations. Uh, the last four, the last one, and this one, it, it seems to be that we have to get legislation passed right away. And so we'll craft a 2,000-page-plus piece of legislation and give everybody 48 hours or so to look at it. And it, it just doesn't happen. And we end up crafting a piece of legislation that's got parts and pieces of it that may or may not be unconstitutional, that aren't looking at the data very well. Well, all, the, all those little bits and pieces that get you know crammed into the sausage of that one thing that feels fast, people have been working on that for a long time, right? I mean, they've, Sometimes, they've... sometimes. And, and the problem is, is appropriations bills are the worst for this, because people keep cramming stuff into them because they go, well, you know, we want this, this particular effect that people are going to want. So if I put this thing in that's a partisan thing that I want to pass, 
then I can say, hey, you didn't want to feed the starving children and so-and-so, which this bill is going to do, when in reality you don't want to pass it because somebody's put some boondoggle in the corner of the bill. All right, so, so the, I think uh, appropriations is going to be at least one full show at some point coming up here. Oh, I, I think, yeah. You know, and, and somebody maybe will be able to explain what a continuing resolution is and what another, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. It's, so, it's a big thing. But let's focus on the CBO for a minute, okay? Let's, yeah, let's focus on the fact that they are... Um, I mean, I really want to pull up some of these some of these graphs, but but the, you know the they're they're statutory they're they're, they're legally obligated to be nonpartisan. Right. Right. Do, do you think that's they're the, able to? Do you think that's enough? Nixon legislation in seventy four. Right. Which I'll give you the name of that in a minute. But go ahead and uh, wait. It's the oh, I have it right here. I'm trying to work my my mouse really fast, but uh, so I've actually been in this building. That's why Wait. I sent you the link yesterday. I know, I know, I know. I got, I saw that. Well, you sent me a link to something that was a little bit more, uh, a little, like, intensely skeptical about the CBOs. Like, well, you know. and, and and they're they're wrong a lot, and and that's you just have to remember that. And and they they can't help but being wrong. It's not a knock on the CBO. It's it's moving target. You know, they've got to make guesstimates. Um, that constantly, constantly change because our spending constantly changes, and so does our income. So the only way they could be they could be seen as as right or within a range that feels, you know, plausible or accurate or you know, uh, credible, is if nothing that they use in their calculation changes, and well, we, and we've established that there that everything well, changes. It's impossible for them to be completely accurate, but the more the more factors don't change, the more accurate their prediction could become. So, for instance, if we were to freeze the budget today and say we're not going to spend any more than this for X number of years, you know, maybe like the penny plan or something, you go six years, we're not going to spend another dime. Then, then you got half of the you got half of the equation right there is frozen. So the only variable then becomes our revenue. Revenue goes up or down based on GDP. Hmm. Essentially, because that's income. Okay, so your revenue changes; that changes the predictions. So, you know, unless you can freeze revenue and freeze spending, which is just completely impossible and impractical, there's always going to have to be revised estimates. As long as those. So the public, the the the, the representatives and the public who should know a little bit more about this, they don't they don't have to know the, all the all the nitty gritty things. Yeah, they, they just need to know that it's not it's not a static. It's right, but if they had a, we can develop a common language, a common framework for understanding how they do what they do, so that it doesn't seem like big, you know, numbers just pulled out of thin air in right. order to, uh, you know, because you hear about it on the stump. You, that's when you really hear about it, unless you're yeah, unless you're following the stuff like you do. Not a lot of people do it like you do. I mean, no, the, no, the, I'm, the, I'm crazy. Nobody. <laughs> All right, I have to take a, I have to go to a commercial break, but um, but Brett. Yeah, I hope you call in every week, man. You're I awesome. Will attempt to do so. Good, man. Good. Uh, so we'll talk soon. We're going to go to commercial break for a minute, and then we'll play an interview when we come back. Ladies and gentlemen, the CBO. Ah, thank you very much. <laughs> Bye, Brett. Take it easy, sir. You're listening to the Toad Hop Network, radio worth watching. If you didn't check out the Heidi and Frank show this week, well, you didn't get to hear this. Like, I just assume there are cameras everywhere. It's in my hotel room. I mean, off of that ESPN chick, then we got something to laugh here. Aaron Neville. Aaron Neville. I don't know much. Looks like a guy is having sex with a woman that he's fucking her with a face mole. And then afterwards, he gets out of the shower, he hangs his towel on his own mole to dry. 
his keys when he gets home, but he never loses them. Just hangs his keys on there. Clink, 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 clink. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know where my keys are. The Heidi and Frank Show, live every day from 10 to noon on the Toad Hop Network. Or you can hear them whenever you want by becoming a VIP and getting unlimited access to all the fun at HeidiandFrank.com. The air attack warning sounds like this is the sound.
You're listening to the Toad Hop Network, radio worth watching. Welcome back to Vox Populi, the voice of the occasionally interested people. Me now? I'm live? Ah! All right, cool. Uh, all right, so we started our little, you know, wading into the waters of the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office. If anything, we're doing the marketing technique. If we say it over and over again, the CBO, the CBO, the CBO, you will, uh, you will come away a little bit smarter. The next time you're listening to uh, Fox News and that phrase comes blowing by, you'll think, hey, wait a minute, how do they score that? Which report was that based on? Was that a, an official estimate or were they... So, and that's what we want you to be able to do. Um, I want to play a, an interview that I did, and this is this is how great this country works, and frankly, this is how great the CBO is. I was uh, on my way in. Oh, actually, it was last night. I decided, you know, I was looking through studying the the CBO, discovering their their website, and looking up articles about how terrible they are and how great they are, and so on and so forth. And um, what I realized was. You can actually call them. Hey, how about that? Uh, or send an email. So I did uh, send an email this morning. Actually, I left a message. I left a message. I'm just trying to find her. Uh, there she is, Deborah uh, Kilrow, who is the, um, I'll give her exact, uh, she's the Associate Director of Communications at the Congressional Budget Office. And I uh, left a message saying, hi, my name is Sean Astin. I'm an actor. I'm a talk radio show host now, but on a political show and blah, blah, blah. I gave her a little description of it. And I said, this was at like 8 o'clock in the morning this time. So 11 o'clock that time. And I said, you know, we have the show coming on, and I would really love to um, have somebody official from the CBO, you know, just r respond to a couple of questions or just share with us, you know, the, the official uh, party line of what's going on with the CBO. And she was uh, – and, and next thing I know, I'm downstairs here at City Walk at Universal Studios, and uh, I'm going in to get a Jamba Juice. And my phone rings, and who is it? It's Deborah. Hi, Sean. This is Deborah from the CBO. Right on! Deborah from the CBO is like, shh, stop it. Can you turn the music off? And uh, we talked for a little bit, and I explained what I wanted. And she said, well, listen, the director really wanted to talk to you. I'm like, the director of the CBO wanted to talk to me right now? <laughs> Someone's going to be nice about this agency in public. We want to facilitate that conversation. So, she, But unfortunately, it was too late notice. I'm like, I know. I'm not uh, you know, CNN or anything. I'm not Anderson Cooper calling. I'm just little old me. So she said, but I do have a couple of suggestions, and incredibly nice lady, very polite, very um, accommodating. She said that we do have – there's a guy who just wrote a book. Um, the book is called The Congressional Budget Office, Honest Numbers, Power, and Policymaking Ooh. by Philip Joyce. No relation to James. Uh, and she said that he wrote this book, and it was in authority. It's the first time that there's been a book published – with the approval of the CBO since 1974. Um, oh, I found the name of that act, too, that established it. But anyhow, um, I'll tell you that in a minute. So she said, there's, he, there's him, and I can also send you an email, if you'd like, about our, uh, one of our, the, our former directors. And then she just, you know, kind of, she was, and she sent me an email. I mean, just walking up here to the studio. So I, I jumped on the phone, and I called. Uh, first, I left a message for Philip uh, Joyce, and then I called... Um, Former CBO director Doug Holtz Eakin, who uh, and and he I I caught him on the phone, explained who I was and why I was calling, how I got his number, and said I'd love to do an interview. It's last minute. He said like right now, and I said yeah, right now. 
And let me just play for you what that uh, that conversation was that I just called right before I walked into this studio. Uh, Donde esta that thing? Uh, there it is. Okay. Here you go. The uh, official or former official uh, word from CBO. Do I need to turn the volume up or something? Oh, here it comes. Uh, all right, so we have the former CBO director, Doug Holtz Eakin, on the line from a cab in where, in D.C.? Absolutely. Excellent. So we are the, you know, we have enough time on my show. We don't have to worry about commercial breaks and that stuff. We can really dig into things. And the whole premise of our show is uh, um, civil discourse. And I'm, this is, we're a new show, but I'm really excited because this whole episode is dedicated to the CBO, a place where I was having fun with people. We were going to, we we're going to record live from the CBO only. Nobody knows where it is, you know. What do those initials <laughs> stand for? So I would just love it if you could, um, Gosh, there's so much that I could ask you, but uh, how was your tenure as the uh, the director of the CBO? Well, I was uh, CBO director from February 5th, 2003 to the uh, end of 2005. I loved it. It's the best job I've ever had. Uh, CBO uh, actually does exist. It's in something called the Ford House Office Building, uh, and the Ford House Office Building is a former FBI fingerprint storage facility and has all the ambiance you would expect uh, <laughs> from that from that building. And so um, it's located close to the Capitol, and uh, it's populated by what is unquestionably the geekiest collection of people in Washington, D.C., uh, 250-odd individuals, uh, 185 to 190 of them have advanced degrees, and they exist for the sole purpose of serving Congress and answering the question, if we do this, piece of legislation, what will happen to the revenues collected by the federal government and the spending that it makes. So it's it's uh, it has to be nonpartisan by law. Um, yes, are, nonpartisan by law. And how does how is that I can't imagine that it's not I mean I understand that it's nonpartisan that you guys are, are law abiding, you know, government officials, but how how can it do that? How can you guys maintain or how can the CBO maintain that nonpartisan thing when there's so many people trying to get the numbers to go the way they want? Uh, it, it's easier probably than you think. Uh, for, first of all, um, this was a big issue in my case. I had worked in the Bush White House just prior to being appointed, and there were many in Congress who openly questioned my ability to put aside my partisan past and, and be the director. Um, uh, Ken Conrad, currently the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, was, was certainly of that um, mindset. And one of the greatest pieces of praise I've received was his praise when I left job, where he said, you know, you really did call him straight. And that's the job. So... What I did every time uh, something touched out there, I just looked in the mirror. I said, tell the truth. It'll be fine. And that's what you do. And the staff there has nonpartisanship in their DNA, so it's pretty hard to get off course. And you know you're doing your job when pretty much everyone is mad at you. So <laughs> what, what do they mean when they say... <laughs> What do they mean when they say models? You know, we've got these models, and sometimes we go to experts like in the agriculture industry to get to get their their data or their models. Like, what what is that for the for the average Joe? What what does it mean that you guys are using models to come up with these things? Uh, models can be simple things like a, a spreadsheet where you add up the spending over ten years, and it can be very complicated things like a, a computer simulation model that tries to uh, guess ten years in the future. Uh, which people have uh, health insurance from the new health care reform, which people have it from the employer, which people will have it uh, from Medicare or Medicaid. 
Uh, and those are very elaborate models, and uh, they range everything in between. So one of the things that models do is they force discipline on the CBO. If you put in different uh, proposals and you use the same model, you're going to get consistent answers. I mean, it'll say this one's more expensive than that one. And that consistency is just as important, maybe more important than being accurate in the forecast. No one can, can predict the future with great accuracy, but it's your job to tell the Congress when they're doing something that's more or less expensive, and you want to do that in a very systematic way. I think once I saw, I, last night we were looking at all these YouTube clips, and I'm not sure that this was you, but in one um, committee hearing, either you or, or another director said that you, you don't generate budgets or estimates or um, any of the, the products that you guys put out based on speeches, that there was a lot more that went into it. Do you remember, was that you who said that? That was uh, Doug Elmendorf, the current CBO director, and uh, the president had just given a speech about what he liked the budget to look like, and they, they asked Doug Elmendorf you know, how it would score. That's the term they use. And he said, we don't score speeches. We score legislation. And that's a very important point because uh, when you actually write the legislation, it matters the details, and CBO scores legislation. And it matters in a, in a very particular way uh, because... If the Congress says they're going to cut $500 billion out of an ag program next year, the CBO can't second-guess it. You and I might think there's no way in God's green earth that's going to happen. But if it's in the law, CBO scores the law, and you would see $500 billion in lower spending. So when I have this image that uh, the, the, the chairperson of a committee or a subcommittee wants, the, wants to see something scored or wants an estimate or something, and so they, they, they ask for it, however that happens, you know, they send out a flare or something, and then it's left to the people in their office to work with somebody like a liaison or something in your guy's office to, to figure out what exactly the law is. is? I mean, it's, it's not a law yet. It's, it's, a, it's a draft of a law, right? Right, and as the draft... Um, becomes more specific, they'll get a better answer. So often there are four or five different estimates on, on any, any single piece of legislation as they first ask for, you know, what, you know, does this cost us money or not? And then they say, well, you know, is this a $10 billion or $100 billion? What's the order of magnitude? And then you get to, okay, we have more detail, you know, we, we, it's going to be $85 billion or even 90 And then you get down to the final detail. So it's an iterative process. They learn from the CBO and, and vice versa. All right, last question. You've been so unbelievably gracious to just let me, uh, you know, c totally cr crash your cab ride and, and ask you a bunch of questions on the air here. But um, w when people talk about the politicization and you see, um, you know, politicians either – you know, use the CBO as a whipping post, you know, well, they got this wrong and they got that wrong, or, they, or they'll or they say, you know, well, you know, even the CBO said that this, that, or the other thing is though it's, uh, it's somehow, um, you know, th that that tonality, the, the using of the data to in the, in the, on the stump, in the political arena as they're, as they're pushing public opinion, how, how does it, how does it feel from the inside of the CBO? How do you how do you keep put a firewall up, or or is it okay to be responsive to that? You know, how do you deal with with how do you see it, and how do you deal with it? Um, number one, I never took it personally. I mean, people say all sorts of things about the CBO and the CBO director in particular, and I, I figure it's just business. Um, you know, if you watch college basketball, there's always uh, a referee positioned right around midcourt, and there's always a coach standing right behind him, screaming in his ear trying to soften them up for the next call. And that's what I figured criticism was. They're just beating on me, hoping I'll get soft and give them a call. It wasn't going to happen. And uh, I didn't think it was personal. It was them doing their job, so I ignored them. 
and CBO by and large just ignores this. Uh, its job is not to fix the record, balance the scales in the campaign. That's all politics. People go do that. CBO's job is to serve the Congress of the United States with its best budgetary advice, and that's what it does. What was the hardest? What, was, there, was there a moment in the job over your tenure where you just thought this is – this is hard. Was it like a mistake that got made, or was it the way that something happened, like the economy t- started tanking and you couldn't have anticipated? Or like, what was a what was a really rough moment in the in your tenure? Uh, there, there are any number of moments. Um, the, the smaller ones are usually the ones that uh, people don't see, but are but are hardest. People fight the most over the small bills, the the, the game preserve they want to put in their state, and they find out it's going to cost two hundred million dollars and they don't have it, and they start screaming at you. So. Uh, there's no single moment that stands out as my worst. Um, there were several colorful ones, I promise you. I won't name names. <laughs> um, I, I've been called everything under the sun to my face. And, you know, like I said, it, it's it's just business. And Where did you go um, from there? Where did, where did you take your career after the CBO? Uh, I left the CBO, and as it turned out, there was this fellow, John McCain, who called me up the day after I left and said, I, I saw you did a CBO. I thought you did a great job. He said, I'm thinking about running for president. I'd be wondering if you're willing to help me out. And I was a, a big fan of John McCain as a person. And so without ever having been involved in a political campaign before my entire life, from economist by training, uh, I ran the domestic and economic policy shop on the McCain campaign. So I went from CEO to McCain campaign to unemployed. <laughs> well, I, I listen. I, I can't wait to see what you do next, man. And, and uh, we'll, we'll be watching. We'll be watching closely. Thank you. Um, thank you, thank you, thank you for taking a little bit of time out to to talk to us. I hope you're uh, you are you there? Are you did you get where you're going? <laughs> I, I'm I'm uh, arrived safely, and um, look, I am pleased to do this. I'm an enormous fan of, uh, of the Congressional Budget Office, and I think it's uh, fabulous you're doing a show on it. Well, I will, uh, I'll reach out to you in the future. I've got your email, actually. I'll reach out to you in the future, and maybe you can give some, some additional thoughts then. And, and until then, uh, Doug Holtz-Eakin, thank you very much for your time. My pleasure. Good luck. <laughs> Thanks, Doug. Come on. Come on. How responsive are these people? That guy was awesome. So clearly a political guy, but also uh, a good uh, a good civil service worker um yeah so what can i say there's as i'm looking through here there is so much stuff that you can grab onto looking at this i really wanted to see charts deficits or surpluses percentage of d uh, gdp uh, and then you've got the actual, and then the proje- the baseline projected, and then the alternative fiscal scenarios. They look really cool. They're fancy. They look like little mountains. And little <laughs> um, you've got the uh, you've you've got let's see outlays recorded for the troubled asset relief program. You know, instead of just taking, I, I'm sure that in the newsrooms in CNN and and uh, you know and MSNBC and Fox and whatever, there's there's somebody one of their producers or, or researchers or whatever is going to this stuff and pulling their graphs and then they're they're writing their stories and, and, and using them. And it just, I don't know. I just think it's good for us members of the public, we the people, to kind of know where we can look. We pay for it. We pay uh, $40 million, $44 million a year to have them do it. So now the downside... Um, so one of the followers, uh, Twitter followers, and by the way, thank you very much for the uh, at host Vox Populi uh, follower community. I really appreciate all the um, enthusiastic 
conversations that happen. Jason, I've got you in mind as well. You're my uh, my conservative uh, bastion of uh, constantly flowing good news. But anyhow, uh, somebody sent this from uh, the Cato at Liberty. Um, I don't know if it's a blog or some sort of a magazine site, but it says CBO forecast accuracy. Economic variables are key drivers of the numbers in CBO's budget projections. I noted last week that CBO's new outlook assumes substantially lower interest rates, uh, which appears to to produce more than a trillion dollars of savings over the next decade. So this is the thing. You know, if if everybody gives a penny, can you pay down the the deficit? You know, I mean, where where if you if you decrease uh, taxes, does that suppress wages, and so you have less taxable income? And there's you know, the CBO is in the business of trying to offer people ways to think about uh, those uh, metrics. Okay. Um, there's so much going on. I would love I would love to talk about I would love to talk with you guys. 888-520-4374. I'd love to talk with people who either have a really evolved opinion about the CBO and what it does or have uh no opinion about the CBO. I'd love to hear um people who've who've uh felt that it's oh, Hey, look at that. <laughs> Uh, I'd love to talk to people who feel as though the uh, the numbers have been doing a disservice to uh, the public. There's one other uh, one other thing I was looking at here. Now the Wonk blog isn't there. Um, <laughs> all the conversations I've had with people about it, people say, uh, you know, well, the problem is this: they don't the 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 they they're not uh, they're not 100% accurate. That you know, it's based on changing data and all this stuff. And and but as soon as you get into the conversation, people kind of very quickly um, agree that there's value to what they're doing and that the problems with it don't exist from the actual work that's being done but from the way uh, it's being interpreted. And I, I, I was able this morning, that our key, uh, let me see, what how much time is it? What do we got going on there? 12.48? Can I start my next uh, interview? How long do we got? Seven minutes. Um, let me go ahead and start my interview with our host, our uh, our guest for the day, Michael uh, Michael Medved, who is really you know he's a conservative um, talk show host, radio show host. He's got like four uh, million people a, a week, I guess, or, or that uh, that listen to him, and uh, you know he's he's kind of a firebrand. He's figured out how to really be provocative at times and you know when I see him I, I get so frustrated listening to him talk but I also know that he is uh, uh, just a really a really compelling thinker so I want to play for you uh, this morning at 7 a.m. he was kind enough after just getting back he just gone to Israel and then he landed in um, DC to give a speech and he's back in Seattle and I was able to catch him on the phone this morning and talk to him about a whole host of subjects but uh the <laughs> with the with the poster falling down and uh and trying to manage all the digital information one thing that is clear is that as a host I have a lot of room for growth and uh that's where I started the conversation with him uh so let me go ahead and play it's a good interview we're going to we'll we'll go to break after a little bit and uh and we'll get the rest of it but here is my wonderful conversation this morning with uh with Michael Medved Okay. 
All right. Well, to the best of my knowledge, we are in fact recording. Um, okay. So we were, we were just, Michael, good morning. Good morning, Sean. I'm going to do a, uh, a, a wonderful introduction of you before, uh, before <laughs> I, I play our interview and, and it's going to be comprehensive. So it's going to take up the full two hours because your, uh, your life and biography are, are staggering. <laughs> There's like, you've done, you've done so much. I, I'm, I'm, I want to make you feel old now. Yes, well, yes, you, you, I feel like I'm staggering even to hear that. Um, uh, that's uh, the, um, the there, there's a famous story, as you may know, about um, uh, a, a film where the, the producer um, uh, writes, writes back to the director who's on location somewhere and says, the costs are staggering. This is in the days of telegrams, and the uh, uh, producer writes back, and so is the cast. <laughs> But you might know something about yeah, that. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Well, I, I, uh, I just meant there's, there's so much that I wanted to, uh, that occurs to me to ask you. But, I, but I suppose that the most important thing is uh, how do I survive in this radio world? I mean, we, we, uh, I mean, I mean, not in terms of um, the network. I actually have a lot of latitude with, uh, with this little gang of uh, upstart misfits that uh, where we're doing this. Uh, radio podcast that we we broadcast from uh, from Universal Studio City Walk and the the John Lovett's Comedy Club. They built a, a really cool state of the art uh, radio booth, you know, facility with cameras and everything in, in the in the corner. And, and uh, but but I have some I have some some room to discover myself and develop an audience and everything. But what I mean is, how do you how do you do it? How do you keep <laughs> You know what I mean? How do you how do you do what you do? I look at I, I look at your your website michaelmedved dot com and it's just unbelievable. You, the way you approach topics is so uh, you know compelling and interesting and provocative, and there's no shortage of them. There's a there's a thing mentioned on the show, and the list of people and things and ideas is uh, it's just a, do do you have like forty people that work with you? No, I I, I work with. Um, uh, uh, two producers, one of whom runs the boards, and you know what that means. That means he basically drops in any um, sound bites, uh, drops in the commercials, um, makes sure that I get out clean, get out on time, which, as you know, Sean, that's one of the hardest things in radio. And then the other producer, Greg, uh, is the guy sitting in a glass booth taking the calls. And then in addition to that, I have a personal assistant, Carmen, who helps with uh, research and answering mail and my schedule and um, basically everything else. Uh, Carmen works for me. The um, the other two producers work for the syndicators. So I guess you could say I have a staff of one. But <laughs> my my biggest advantage in in terms of radio, I think, is that I've always been hugely curious. I I, I love having a professional excuse to spend most of my time reading and going through stuff, uh, it does it does make for some hardship, and I bet you found this already, which is that you uh, see I'm a dead trees kind of guy, rather than a sit at a uh, electronic screen kind of guy. <laughs> so I travel around with a black bag that's also known as the black hole that is filled with all kinds of highlighted clippings, hmm. and uh, and then it's a question about when you want to use them and what you want to use and. Do you have them laid out in front of you while you're in your while you're talking on the on the air? Uh, well, they they're not so much laid out in front of me as they're piled in 
another movie reference, there was, uh, I think it's Never Give a Sucker an Even Break. It's, it's one of the W.C. Fields movies where he has a desk that is just bursting with stuff everywhere, but he knows exactly where to find it. Yeah. Uh, that's like me, except I don't know exactly where to find it. I'm, I'm awfully, awfully <laughs> I just picturing Andy Rooney's, you know, thing and, you know, his, uh, that, that kind of pile of stuff. But, uh, all right. So, so that's a little, that's good to, um, conceptualize. I mean, I, what you just described, I feel like is what, what I've done. My, this is the, ep, this is the fourth episode. And, and for, for a month now, I, I don't, I have a show once, uh, once a week for two hours uh, which allows me to really dig in with with stuff, you know, to really not have to worry about uh, segments, and you know, we we can go on and on with calls if we want, or we can really unpack an <clears throat> an issue. But uh, but it just flies by the, the, from Thursday to Thursday. I just don't. I and I'm I'm constantly thinking and making notes and and you know looking at the news differently. I mean, I I saw you on was it Meet the Press? All right, we're gonna uh, we're gonna go. I'm gonna jump in, go to commercial break. Uh, we come back and uh, see how nice he is. <laughs> uh, we'll go to commercial break and we'll come back with more with Michael Medved and uh, CBO. You're listening to the Toad Hop Network, radio worth watching. Hey everyone, it's the Sports Guru and the Bud Knocker. Join us Wednesday, May 30th for the first ever SportsCast Comedy Night right here at the John Lewis Podcast Theater. Doors open at 3 p.m., so get here early. Come watch the SportsCast on the big screen from 4 to 6 p.m., followed by a live comedy show from 6.30 with some of the best in the business. Comedians Jeff Dye, Josh Filipowski, and Brian Moot will have you rolling with laughs all night long. $3 valet, $3 beers all night long. So come join us May 30th, 3 to 10 p.m., John Lovett's Comedy Club for a night of laughs, partying, drinking, and who knows what else. Hey, it's Heidi and Frank for ScoreBig.com. There's been two ways to get tickets up until now. You can go to the venue or team site and buy your tickets directly. Or you could go to the big ticket sellers, the scalpers, if the tickets for the really big events are sold out. And you can pay way, way over face value. Who wants to do that? Who would do that? Nobody! That's stupid. You don't have to do that anymore. Thanks to ScoreBig.com, a great website where you always pay less than retail. And you never, ever, ever pay any ticketing fees at ScoreBig.com. And you can save up to 60%. On tickets. Every ticket on the Scorebig website is below retail price. Guaranteed. Great events. Lakers, Clippers, Kings, USC, UCLA, Basketball, Disney Hall, Kevin Theater. Mention specific teams in a list. Well, you did. <laughs> and, uh... I think that's uh, perfect the way you did Those that. were teams in Southern California, but scorebig.com is everywhere. everywhere. I just had a, I got a tweet. global. I got a tweet from a guy saying he's got his Giants tickets and he saved 30%. Awesome. Thanks, scorebig.com. And that's what we're talking about. Uh, not just nosebleed seats, everything from the floor to the rafters. And again, no service or shipping fees ever. Your offer at scorebig.com is what you pay. Always less than retail, never any fees, scorebig.com. Then type in Heidi and Frank to get uh, the, the passcode. Skip the line. Yeah. Start shopping right away. V- get your tickets today. VIP treatment. Don't here. wait. <laughs> type in Heidi and Frank. Do it right now. What are you still sitting here for? S-C-O-R-E-B-I-G.com. Proof why well, I was never a cheerleader. I can't spell. There's more proof than that. Live, live from Universal Studios Hollywood in beautiful Los Angeles, California. ToadHopNetwork.com. Radio worth watching. Radio worth watching. 
This is Vox Populi. Vox Populi. The voice of the occasionally interested people. A political talk show for people who don't spend a lot of time talking politics. The only agenda. Understand, inform, and entertain. Now, here's your host, Sean Astin. Hey, everybody, we're back. I'm Sean Astin, host of Vox Populi, voice of the occasionally interested people here on the Toad Hop Network, toadhopnetwork.com, or iTunes um, podcast. Okay, so we when, we when last we left you, we were listening to Michael Medved. Here's just a couple of little things about Michael Medved that, uh, that, that are really uh, interesting. He was a movie critic before he was a... Uh, a political talk show, uh, political commentary, uh, you know, commentator is the word I'm looking for. Um, the 50 worst films of all time. I suppose if I was in one of them, he wouldn't have been, he wouldn't have consented to be interviewed. Uh, the, the Hollywood Hall of Shame. Uh, and these are some of his books that he wrote. Um, he was also a film critic with Roger Ebert and Jim Emerson. He, uh, he was also, uh, um, he did, he did so many he did so many things he got uh, got into a little bit of mischief with uh um not mischief but Clint Eastwood's Oscar winning million dollar baby uh the the critics uh looked at at Medved's statements as sort of a plot spoiler and he uh he he was just talking about kind of end of life issues and and uh, I think it was a buzzkill for some people who wanted to just enjoy the movie but he uh felt like he was doing a a, a uh, had a moral obligation to give his audience his thought on it he when he got into uh talk radio he was working with Rush Limbaugh um, that, uh, you know, and I think he, he guest hosted for Rush Limbaugh like 40 times or or, uh, or more. Um, his show now, uh, I think it's a Michael Medved, uh, I'll get that right in a second, but uh, is on the Salem Radio Network, uh, syndicated in over 200 uh, places across the country. The guy's got a serious footprint. Uh, and, you know, let me let me go ahead and jump back into my interview with him this morning. Um I was really glad because of all my guests so far, I, I kind of took the liberty of really, yeah, just just not worrying about his, his time so much, just talking to him, and he seemed uh, willing to willing to talk. So um, here you go. Did you go over two weeks ago? No. Um, I, 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 I don't, so here I we're don't talking about uh, an appearance of his that I saw. He was sitting around, I, I don't know, it was maybe three weeks ago, um, a month ago. But here you go. What happens with this shot, and you know this, is you do these little TV hits, and then it's on tape, and then sometimes they keep turning up again like bad pennies. A week ago, I was in Israel, and I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't doing anything live in the United States. Well, I've lost all sense of time, so it might have been three months ago, but it felt like last week somehow. But, but um, well, well I, I'm, I'm very, I'm very pleased. I'm quite glad that that turned up. It, the, the one thing that I would mention to you, and it sounds like you've already got it, is um, I, I remember when I started my radio show, which is 16 years ago, um, Rush Limbaugh, who he can say and do some awful things, and of course uh, I, I, sometimes Rush is cringe-inducing, but he still understands this business and better than anybody else. He, he, he told me before I started, and I think he was entirely right, the most important thing in talk radio 
is be yourself. Don't don't play a character. Don't read somebody else's script. Cover the stuff that, that you're passionate about, that you're interested in, that that gets your juices flowing, and then the audience will see that. And the audience sees through phonies. And I think the great thing about you, as, as, as I know you, is there's nothing that's phony about Sean Astin. Uh, what you see is what you get. And that's a, a tremendously winning quality for talk radio. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, you know, I, I've been trying... The premise of the show, it's called, it's called um, Vox Populi, Voice of the, and then kind of in graffiti underneath it, Occasionally Interested People. And, and so the the concept that I'm going for is, uh, in terms of tone, is civil discourse. And what what I realized after the second episode was, you know, there's a there's a balance between people not screaming at each other, people not, you know, using language that's that's inflammatory while they advocate their point of view, and being boring, you know, like so. Uh, so I'm trying. Well, hey, you're, you're 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 right, and I think you're touching exactly on something that our country needs right now. And uh, what's interesting to me is a lot of the advocates for civil discourse are, at the moment, angry all the time. Our, our, our mutual friend, uh, Richard Dreyfus, for instance, uh, talks a lot about uh, civics and civil discourse. But Richard is so angry. <laughs> it, it, it's sort of the opposite. I, 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 He's also professorial. That, I mean, I, I like him very much, and I enjoy his uh, his lectures and, and hearing him interviewed and stuff. But I, but it's it's pedantic. It seems like to me. And, and and what I my genuine cause with the show and today's topic is is proof of it. And and I'm, uh, you know, I'm thrilled to hear you say, you know, be yourself because this is finally an episode where I feel like it's me. This is what I really want to do. This is the reason I'm doing it. I'm focusing on the CBL. <laughs> and uh, as I was tweeting about it, I was joking like I was gonna pro I was gonna broadcast live from the CBO, but I didn't know where it was. You know, I was I was gonna uh, you know, does anybody know what it means? And and uh, creme brulee office, and you know, just kind of people <laughs> people don't you know people know in the debates that 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 you know phrase or the idea that they come up with a report or whatever is is just kind of a part of the the discussion but most people when i talk about it have no idea what it is or what it does so we're gonna we're gonna have some fun with that today and i'm sure you have uh you know as you wait before i before i ask you this question there's just one thing about you as i was looking through your biography again that i just have to bring up because i think there's one of the things that you didn't sort of mention uh, in, in your list of important things of, to, to you know and okay. to do when you're when you're doing a show is just native intelligence I mean, you, is it true that you were like a, a, an 18-year-old or 16-year-old uh, freshman at a undergrad? Is it, did I read that right? Yeah, I, I started Yale when I was 16. Wait, let's say that slowly for the audience. You started Yale when you were 16. Did you know somebody? No. I, I, what had happened was I had skipped grades as a little kid and, um, and then, you know, graduated from high school and uh, applied my senior year in high school. As, a, as, a, uh, as you may remember, back in the 60s, uh, and I, I started college in September of 1965, uh, in, in California, if you had a B average, uh, you were guaranteed to get into a University of California school. I didn't and, know that. Yeah, so I, I actually started UCLA when I was 15. and. Wow. And so my senior year in high school, I did that program where you do senior year in high school, and you're also taking close to a full class load at UCLA. And interestingly, I was doing better at UCLA, which is where my wife went to school, by the way. 
than uh, much later. But, I'm a, I'm a um, Bruin, and my, my, my middle daughter, who's nine, is giving a huge speech in school today on, uh, on UCLA and the history of the UC system. <laughs> well, it, what's interesting, my, my wife is actually a second-generation Bruin, and uh, our son, Danny, is uh, hoping uh, to, to go to UCLA in, in communications at some point. But the... So I, I was doing UCLA already, and then and then I got I got into Yale as a freshman, where they don't really accept the UCLA classes. But so I started as a freshman at, at 16, and and basically I test well. <laughs> it sounds like, it sounds like a metaphor for your political your your journey from a kind of a liberal um, thinker and activist, activist to uh, yeah to to a, a you know really kind of ninja conservative is what I think of you as. <laughs> well, I. I appreciate it. I don't see myself as uh, any any ninja aspect to it because I'm not wearing any masks. Uh, <laughs> but the, um, uh, the the idea is that when when I um, when I started off at at, at Yale, it was I, it's always fun, and I, I'm sure you remember this to live away from home for the first time, and to live away from home in in that environment, which was so different. I mean, I was a public school guy, and had never gone to private school a day in my life. What's, what's fascinating to me is when you look at the presidential candidates and Vice President Biden, you know they're all prep school people. None of them have ever gone to public school. Joe Biden went to the most expensive prep school in Delaware. Is that, uh, is that, do you think that's a, a knock because they don't have a connection to the common man kind of thing? No, I, I just think it's, it's, it's interesting because we're supposed to be this uh, upwardly mobile society where people move back and forth uh, uh, into the elite and out of the elite, and, and I think that a lot of that, unfortunately, is being lost in the United States, and it's a concern. Obama uh, went to the, by far the most expensive prep school in Hawaii, and the mo one of the most expensive prep schools in the country. And uh, his his grandmother, of course, was a banker, and 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 uh, uh, by the same token, Romney went to the most expensive prep school. He did go to public school for a time. But when he was very young, but then he went to this Cranbrook, which was a very expensive prep school in Michigan. So, look, nothing, nothing wrong with prep schools, and that's terrific, but it, it does indicate that you're not one of those classic American Abraham Lincoln up from the bottom stories. Uh. Uh, those stories are, of course, a lot more common in our parents' generation, don't you think, Sean? I mean, my grandfather was a barrel maker who never went to, to school are you kidding me? a day in his life. He was a cooper? Is that what they call those? Yep, yep, yep. And Your grandfather's a Cooper. How old are you? Uh, I'm, I'm, I've been. I was at Gettysburg. You know, I did the the Williamsburg tour when I, in the eighth grade, and that, that's when I first learned about that job. But I, I thought that went out with uh, when Coors retooled its its factory in nineteen odd whatever. <laughs> he he worked with a with a company called Publicers in Philadelphia. My grandfather was born in eighteen seventy six, and he came to the United States in nineteen ten, so relatively late as an immigrant. And I just found something out about him. I have a sponsor, and you know, I don't know if you know about sponsors, but I have a sponsor called Ancestry.com, and they've helped me find all kinds of stuff my about my family. And my grandfather came to the U.S. in 1910. He became a citizen in 1941. And in, in 1943, uh, at the age of, in his late 60s, he tried to enlist in the Army. <laughs> and, and he was lying about his age, and and he spoke with a very thick accent. His his English was never very good. I knew him when I was a little kid, but I just think it's so cool that my before my dad went into the navy at, at age eighteen, 
my, my grandfather wanted to enlist. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it was a, um, I know when I, at, at a certain point I was in DC and, uh, and I was invited to go to this building where the selective service does their work. And, um, and they, I had, you know, when I turned 18 or whatever, or 16 or whatever you're supposed to do it, I had registered with the selective service, like every American is legal, male is legally obligated to do when they reach their age of majority. And because I had successfully done that, I was invited there and they, they printed on a big poster, uh, you know, kind of one of those checks that you see at a telethon or something like that. M me with my, with that name, uh, with my name and the number of my selective service thing, my identification or whatever. And, uh, and they, they sort of, you know, were congratulating me and thanking me and they were happy because I was famous and they were, they could take a picture because, you know, everybody hates a selective service. And, uh, the, and that we went over to that, to the, the bowl where all of the the lottery bowl from Vietnam that was chosen where they pull out people's numbers. And I, I remember putting my hand on that bowl and just feeling like it was electrified because of the fate of so many souls that that were affected by what happened inside that bowl. And, uh, yeah, I, and remember I, the, I remember the night of the first lottery. This is uh, just so that people know what we're talking about back in the 60s they went from a situation where basically everybody got drafted i mean you had to really do something uh proactive to avoid getting drafted if you college marriage aside uh yeah and and what happened is president nixon began moving toward a volunteer army and a step in that direction was what was called a draft lottery where your birthday would be picked uh my birthday is october 3rd and i still remember my I, that was picked number 303, which meant almost certainly I wasn't going to be drafted. I wasn't going to be called because they weren't going to reach that. And I remember the night of the lottery, one of my friends from, from Yale who was um, really, really determined. He did not want to go into the military under any circumstances. And he was so thrilled with the lottery and he was so certain he was going to win. He actually had a, a, a draft lottery party and he got beer for people and um, wow. And it was supposed to be a, a big deal. And, of course, his birthday was September 14th. It was a first date picked. Wow. <laughs> which, which meant, the celebration uh, took party. on a different hue. My point was just that it's, uh, it was right in that moment where the uh, – it seems to me studying, you know, history. That's what, I studied uh, English and history at UCLA. And, and, uh, but, you know, this, this concept of your grandfather and, and service and this kind of point of pride of people – uh, going into the army after the second or during the second because of the second world war after Pearl Harbor and everything else kind of shifted in American life and uh, and then it became you know when you you look at President Clinton or or Vice President you know Cheney there's there's a totally different relationship to service uh, you know in that or, or in Vice that President Biden I mean remember Biden is the perfect age to have served in Vietnam uh, and. Uh, he got five uh, deferments and exemptions at, at different times. So, uh, it, what's what's interesting about that? This is going this is going to be the first election where uh, no candidate for either president or vice president has any military experience. It's the first election uh, since uh, I think it's since 1928. That's a, that's a shocking thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I, I um I, and again I just came back from Israel as I mentioned Sean and and what's interesting there is how different that situation is. My everybody, right? Everybody, it's compulsory. Everybody, at least for a, a year or two years. It's three years. Three and years of military. Yeah, you, you go in for three years into the military. Girls go in for two years. Guys go in for three years. 
But for guys, after you go in for three years, unless you're in a, a, an active duty combat unit, uh, you continue in the reserves, the Miluim, till you're 55. And that means three weeks every year. And in other words, people talk about the, the, the difference between a participation and a commitment. Uh, when you're in the Army, basically three weeks a year till you're 55, that's a commitment. And, but you know what? It's great for that society. And I think it would be great for our society, too, frankly, because uh, one of the biggest problems we have in our country, and I'm sure you're going to get to this on Vox Populi, one of the, the biggest problems for our country is we send a lot of kids to college but most of them don't graduate. And in Israel, what they do is with everybody going into the Army, uh, you, you serve, you do your military service right after high school. Everybody does uh, three years. And then after that, the government basically picks up your tab for college if you're part of that majority who goes to college. And almost nobody drops out hmm. because after three years in the Army, you do a lot of growing up. Well, I have a bunch of thoughts on that, but I want to be respectful of your time, and, and I just want to get you to talk about our. I want to ask you, you know, a couple of questions about our, our topic today, because I, I, sure. I, you every every time you open your mouth, it, there's new data, there's there's another perspective of it. And I just, uh, I really, you know, I disagree with you sometimes when I when I hear you talk, and and uh, but I uh, I'm I always feel like I'm smarter after I after I hear you, uh, even if I'm angrier sometimes. But but let me uh, let me ask you about the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office. You know, in every debate. In every political stump speech, people refer to this, um, the work that the CBO does in either a really defamatory fashion or in a kind of proprietary fashion that's meant to, uh, you know, refute anything that the opposition is saying. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about the reports that they put out, the efficacy of, of the, you know, guessing, you know, it's $48 million we spend every year, uh, you know, we the people spend hiring these people to to give us budget huh. projections. And do you have any kind of initial thoughts about that? Yeah, I do. I mean, uh, look, I think that generally um, the CBO does a pretty good job, but it's that old computer saying garbage in, garbage out. The, the question isn't the answers they give. The, the question is the questions they ask. For instance, they had a report that came out yesterday that's about as chilling as anything you want to read about America's future. It suggests that if uh, unless Congress does something significant about our looming budgetary cliff that we're about to fall off of the January 1st, that during 2013 we're going to have a recession that's going to be considerably more painful more painful than what we went through in 2008-2009. It's going to be very bad. Uh, we're going to have a, a decline in our GDP of 1.4%, which just to put that in perspective, what that probably means is that a Dow crash of several thousand points. Uh, it probably means an unemployment rate soaring up above 10% again. Uh, it means literally tens of millions of people who will find their lives shattered because of the incompetence of these politicians. And now, somebody who, who uh, wants the United States to actually focus over the next couple of months, not just on politics, but on getting this thing fixed, would say, well, good for them. The CBO is doing what it's supposed to do. Is it saying this is going to – now, somebody who was critical of the CBO would say, oh, come on. They're giving this gloom and doom report based upon assumptions that aren't true. Everybody kind of knows that Congress is going to have a tough time uh, reaching some kind of agreement. But I think that the markets generally and insiders are saying, yeah, it's going to be tough, but they're going to do it. They, they have to do it. And so that, that's 
to me, Sean, that's the, the good side and the bad side of the CBO. The good side is they're showing if this, then that. And I think they do that in a nonpartisan and a fair way, give their best estimates. But what they don't do and, and is, is they don't ask the right questions. And For instance, one of the things that – do you know about static scoring? Have you uh, – Yeah, I was, I was reading about it last night, yeah. Go, can you give okay. me a little snapshot? Yeah, the static scoring idea is is this notion that, um, okay, if you raise taxes, like a lot of people on the left, right now our top tax rate for um, for even for multimillionaires is 35%. And there are a lot of people on the left who want to put that back to where it was before Reagan, which is 70%, which is to double the top tax rate. And static scoring would say that when you double the top tax rate for for rich people, that means you're going to be taking twice as much taxes away from them. And it doesn't uh, reflect the fact that if you double the top tax rate for rich people, that means they're going to work a lot less. That means they're going to find other ways to hide their taxes. And it never works. I mean, static scoring is always wrong because the way you change taxes changes people's behavior. The best evidence of that is what they did with cigarette taxes. I am to think this is one of the great government success stories that nobody recognizes uh, of the last 50 years is they kept raising cigarette taxes, boom, 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 higher, 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 making cigarettes more and more costly, and it succeeded in reducing the rates of smoking a lot. We went from a country where the majority of people smoked cigarettes every day to a country where now it's less than one out of five. And part of that is, is, is changing people's behavior by changing taxes. So the problem with static scoring, which is what the CBO was required by law to use, is that it's interesting, but it doesn't reflect the real world. I, I don't think there's anyone, there's no liberal who believes that if you take the top tax rate from 35% to 70%, that that's going to leave the behavior of people who are paying that rate unchanged. No, I, but I, th- I thought people were really trying to advocate just going back to the Clinton levels, which is like, 40-something. Yeah, which 47. is 39.6%. Oh, yeah. And, 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 and how they <laughs> arrived at the point six is always, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those Bill Clinton things. Where, well, let's not, let's not say 40%. That doesn't sound good. <laughs> 39.99 and we'll uh, yeah. out the door. Right, yeah. right, right. Exactly. Right. But um, that, that's what happens. In other words, if Congress does nothing, if they reach no agreement, it goes back automatically on January 1st to 39.6. And, and I would agree with, um, with, with most liberals that that will, have, that will have some effect on people's behavior, but not a profound effect. But if, if you talk to people on the left as opposed to the Obama administration, they're talking about raising it much, much more than that. Because here's the, here's the deal. If they raise it back to the Clinton levels, uh, and, and they only do it for the people who earn $250,000 a year or over, which is what President Obama says. It'll produce some more money for the government, but really not that much more. Uh, do you, you, have you seen the CBO figures on this? Because it's fascinating. Well, I've been, st- I've, been re- I've been reading the graph. I've been, I've been trying to understand how to look at the graphs. And, and so f- finish your point, and then I'll, I'll give you my last uh, – my last thought about how it's politicized and, and, and get, your, get your take on that. But, but, uh, well, it is. But in other words, if, if they – the biggest estimate, assuming that it doesn't change behavior, assuming that people work just as hard, assuming they don't hide their money or move it offshore or put it under a pillow or something like that, uh, if, if they raise the top tax rate from 35 to 39.6% just for people who are earning over $250,000 a year and they don't raise taxes for the rest of us, 
that will produce a total of 70 billion more per year for the government. Now that sounds like a lot of money, but that 70 billion more per year is just 7% of our deficit. It really isn't a lot. It means 93% of the deficit is completely unchanged. So you and think we should you, you think we should move it up to 50%? <laughs> No, I don't. What I, what I think is, is going to have to happen, I think we should actually cut the tax rate and get rid of the loopholes. Because, see, this is one of those things. If, you, if you're paying nothing in taxes right now, and it is true, there are some millionaires who are paying nothing in taxes. If you're paying nothing in taxes right now, if you raise the rate from 35 to 39.6%, you're still paying nothing. Because 35% of nothing is nothing, and 39.6% of nothing is nothing. But if you raise it to 39 and then actually enforce it... <laughs> Well, no, it's, it's, it's enforced. It, the, the loopholes are legal. I, for instance, I, I, you know, this is one of those things uh, that, that drives me crazy. Uh, there is no limit uh, right now, uh, up to a million dollars. You can take to, up to a million dollars in home mortgage, and it's, it's all deductible. Uh -huh. it, it doesn't matter who you are. And I think that, that is a, that's a gigantic problem. But it's, it's hard legal. to get elected if you, if you decide to, uh, uh, you know, campaign on, on that. Like, Hey, please vote for me. The thing that's the most expensive thing in your life that's totally deductible now is going to become a, a ding on you. It's going to be hard for. It's hard well, you're for, right, but see, that's that's our problem right now in this country, and it's a profound problem. The two biggest costs to the tax system, and by the way, if you fix these two things, it raises far more money than we would raise by raising the top tax rate even to seventy percent. The two biggest things are the home mortgage deduction, which comes to about two hundred billion a year. And then about $400 billion a year is the tax advantage that is given to people who get their medical insurance at work. In other words, I, I don't know about you, but I'm, I don't, I'm an independent contractor. I don't work for a company. Yeah. So I have to buy my own health insurance. Now, I buy my own health insurance. I get zero tax deduction for it. Uh, people who get their health insurance at work, that's 100% non-taxable. So... What that means is it creates this terrible distortion in our healthcare system. It doesn't make sense for people to have every single doctor's appointment paid for by your healthcare system. Uh, what, what, what makes sense is that people have some kind of catastrophic care insurance. I don't think most American people, uh, rather than paying like $1,000 a month for health insurance or having their company pay more than $1,000 a month for health insurance, I don't think the American people would, would mind if you have to pay for a checkup and routine procedures. What we need is we need to be protected against stuff that's catastrophic. Mm. Well, I think and, most, most Americans would be happy to pay what they can, you know, what they can afford to, to have their, their routine visits or you know, whatever, but, but it's, they get gouged so much when they get in there that uh, they, they you know, just grasp for whatever. whatever. Well, you're, you're right, but they get gouged because the government's covering, not the government, their employers are covering the bill. In other words, what, what happens is you can imagine the same thing in terms of groceries. You would, you would shop very differently for food if you knew that your employer was paying food insurance that basically was tax deductible and uh, that, that was not taxed at all, and it, it didn't matter what you got because your employer was going to pay all of it. Huh. And, and that, I think, is one of the problems with it. the health care system. The problem with the health care system is not that we're not getting good health care in the U.S. I think we get very good health care. The problem is the cost, which is just out of control. And by the way, that's because of more and more government involvement, not less and less. And the same thing is true with higher education. 
uh, you were talking about uh, well, when you went to UCLA, Sean. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll bet it was nearly free. It was it was um, a third of expensive as it is now. That's for sure. They you know they just doubled it and added more. I mean it's it's shocking because for parents looking at paying for for UCLA education, it's it's actually now like a financial consideration. And you're right. When I when I went, it was it was it was like fifteen hundred bucks or something. Twenty twenty two hundred bucks for a uh, you know a quarter for a year. There really years ago it was when when I when I did my two semesters at UCLA as a senior in high school it was uh, four hundred dollars a year. Yeah. And 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 again yes there's been inflation but the reason that 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 costs keep going up and up and up and up for higher education is because the government's underwriting so much of it. And that it seems to me is very unfair because what it means is that we're taking money away from plumbers and janitors and bus drivers and cops. Uh, to fund people who are going to be art history majors at UCLA. <laughs> and nothing wrong with being an art history major oh, at UCLA. Oh, see, yeah. But there's a real question about, is this really important for our national defense and our national security? Uh, does somehow getting someone to major in communications, like my son wants to do at UCLA, uh, should the, the uh, state government and the federal government, both of which are completely broke, uh, should that they be taking money away from hardworking people who aren't going to college? Seventy uh, percent of Americans don't have college degrees. I know. And, I know. And, well, and, we and look again. at our, te our test scores are you know like thirty eighth in the world. I, I'm just throwing that number out there because I just know from uh, I know we're low, you know our, our math and science scores are low. I mean we people need a, a better better education. Okay, listen, I, I, you and I, I could talk to you all day long, and I want to I'm gonna I'm gonna call you a thousand times over the life of this show, <laughs> begging for your your insight and guidance, and and really uh, really poke at you to, to to get your thoughts and challenge you and stuff. But just one last thought, because on the spine of the show. You talked about garbage in, garbage out with the CBO and and the questions that are being asked. You know, I, I saw the head of the CBO in a recent thing was was uh, in a committee hearing said, you know, we don't we don't do uh, reports based on speeches that they have that the, the criteria for for them, you know, doing a, an estimate or something is, uh, is is higher than that. But I just know that. The the way the question I don't know, but I believe based on what I'm studying that the way the questions are asked, you know, it's the 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 heads of the parties, the heads of committees, and the heads of subcommittees can request these these uh, these, these budget estimates, and right. it's very clear that to me, it seems very clear to me that they try and go and get the numbers that'll support their the, the position. Well, that's exactly right. Look, I don't again. While I kind of respect what the CBO tries to do. Uh, if, if it really does cost the public $48 million a year, is that worth it? And my answer would be no, because um, one, of the, one of the things is we just spend too much money. So the news here is Michael Medved says get rid of the, get rid of the CBO. Well, again, this is why people invented think tanks. Uh, you know, it's, it's, if, if, you want, if you want an estimate, the idea that you have this authoritative estimate, that the authoritative estimate from the CBO is all based on these assumptions that are fed to you by various politicians, and then you have to decide – I just um, – it's make work for accountants and bureaucrats, and and it, on something like this where there are tons of think tanks that are privately supported that can come out with their own estimates, and then they can argue about it, and you can analyze it, uh, the idea of having one official word that is supposed to tell you the budgetary Well, no, you've also got the Office of Budget Management and the, or the, the OMB, and then you've got the White House has their budget 
uh, th- it's it's almost like you've you've got at least in the treasury you've got you've got at least three or four you know uh, quote unquote official sources that nobody ever agrees on what it what it right. means and but we don't we don't live in a totalitarian state where there where you know Azar comes in and says these are the numbers that we're all going to live by so you know how do we cho- how do we choose what to what to study, you know, how, how do you, in your discretionary time as an average American voter, which, which website do you go to and which, which of those uh, charts do you, do you look at? Well, I think that argues for one of the problems in, in the United States, which is TMI. There's just too much yeah. information floating out there. And the more information you have, the less reliable any of it is. I mean, I, I think that, frankly, uh, one of the things that is very difficult in this budgetary debate is it's just too complicated for the average American, even though the average American understands the basics, I think, better than our Congress does, and the basics being if you keep spending more than you're bringing in, it's going to be bad in the long term. Uh-huh. Sooner or later, those credit card bills are going to get out of control and you're going to go bust. Michael, thank you. I cannot thank you enough for coming on my my wee little radio, my nascent, uh, you know, show, and just spending so much time with me and giving giving such you know wonderful, uh, thoughtful comments about everything we've been talking. We covered a lot of ground, so you know. Yeah, well, I, it's, it's 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 great fun. We have a lot to talk about, and I'll look forward to talking to you soon. And Sean, I know that Vox Populi is going to be a great success, as all your endeavors tend to be. And uh, I keep it going, and uh, have a great weekend. Thank you. Hey, uh, my fun talk with, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my fun talk with Michael Medved. We're going to go to break. We're late doing it. So a little play me out kind of music that seems apropos. Now, everybody try to find a good hiding place. This old tree is going to be the base. I'm going to close my eyes and hide my face and count to 100 by fives. Ready? Go. Go. Pumpkin pie. Who's not ready? Holler out. Okay, now let's do one more game. 
15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, 80, 85, stop, 85, 17 fingers. Look at that bar with 17 fingers sticking up. How do you do that, kid? Anyway, 5 times 17 is 85. See, that's three fives short of a hundred. If you have three more nickels, 15 cents, and added the 15 to the 85, you'd get a hundred, right? So five times 20 is 100. Everybody got to be hit it. Five, 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50, 55, 60, 65, 70, 75, 80, 85, 90, 95, 100, ready now. Now everybody try to find a good hiding place. This old tree is going to be the base. I'm going to close my network. Radio worth watching. What's up, Toadheads? It's Frank Kramer, Heidi Hamilton. Hey, everybody. From the Heidi and Frank Show. Reminding you that if you have satellite radio, you can check us out every single Wednesday at 6 p.m. Pacific time on Extreme Talk Channel 165. 9 p.m. 9 p.m. Eastern? Uh, on the East Coast, yeah, on Extreme Talk XM 165. And if you don't have satellite radio, well, you're on the Toad Hop Network, so why not check out the Heidi and Frank Show, the backbone of the whole thing? 10 a.m. to noon every single week. The premium package. But you can listen for free every day, 10 a.m. to noon Pacific time. Check us out, HeidiandFrank.com. If you haven't been listening to App Addicts, Foursquare has actually partnered with Open Table. Oh, you guys yeah. heard about that? No. Mm-hmm. So you guys know what Open Table is, right? Right. Yeah. Open Table is, you know, for the listeners, if you don't know, Open Table is, you know, a, a system online that you can go and you can actually register, uh, you know, for um, restaurant. Restaurant. Open Table. Yeah. Tables. No, but it's it's a reservation. There you go. Oh, okay. you can actually make reservations online through Open Table with a variety of different restaurants. Super cool idea for Foursquare. Hey, I'm going to go. You know, I'm thinking about going to this location to, you know, to go eat. I can, you know, obviously I'm going to go there. I can get a discount through Foursquare, some of the things Foursquare has, as well as make my reservation if it happens to be a busy location. App Addicts, Fridays at 4 Pacific, only on the Toad Hop Network. Radio worth watching. Now back to Vox Populi. Here's your host, Sean Astin. Hello, everybody. Uh, I want to welcome back to the show... Our special in-studio guest, my little brother Mackenzie. Good afternoon. That's Mac for, uh, for to all of you. Um, so Mac, you've been uh, thank you very much. Mac's been uh, producing the show with us here and, and really helping out. He, he took care of this great uh, <laughs> banner back here. No, this, we're going to address that in uh, just a moment. Uh, no, it's my fault. The banner is my fault today. Thank you. That's the address uh, we're talking about. Where's the tripod, my friend? Where the tripod. See, just so people know, this this studio, this this uh, Vox Populi Network. There's like 35 shows on the network, and it's like a hotbed. As soon as one show is finished, five minutes before the hour, boom, those DJs come out, and the next DJ comes in. And I just like the idea of having the uh, the colorful uh, you know kind of logo for the show in the background um, and and I have this wonderful thing that my wife bought it's a a tri- an expandable collapsible uh, tripod thing and it just fits ni- nice and neatly into the backpack unfortunately <coughs> in order for that to work you have to bring it anything she wants to hold up at home she can hold up at she, home. she can hold it up she can hold it up yeah so so the the 
the chair that you found was really, I appreciate that. So we did have a little jeopardy with it. But I, I think, you know, when, when we're making, you know, tens of trillions of dollars, uh, on the show with, uh, with advertising and traveling all over the world, entertaining people with our, with our insight and, and genius, we can look back to these early days of the radio show when the uh, backdrop wow. kept falling down. And, in the middle of and the if show. a frog had wings, it wouldn't bump its ass a hopping. Oh, <laughs> that's one of my favorites. No, it's the Toad Hop Network. It's, it's a, the, oh my gosh. Hey, I'll say it again. All right. If a frog had wings. It wouldn't bum its ass a hobbit. <laughs> Frank, you have permission to use that on the uh, on there. Okay, so uh, what I want to do is I want to just go back and forth with you, Mac, about this whole uh, CBO because you helped. Yes. But uh, there's one thing I want to explain, and then a thing I'll play, and we can actually kind of uh, mystery science two thousand it and talk over it while it's playing. But Oof. but the. Um, Early, uh, early in the 1920s, the president began to assume prominence of the federal budget process. Uh, and the Budget and Accounting Act of 1921, the year of our Lord, gave the president overall responsibility for the budget planning. And it required him to submit annual, an annual comprehensive budget proposal to Congress. So nowadays, you, uh, you know, they keep blaming Congress of not presenting, presenting a proposal. But anyway, different folks have different responsibilities about presenting their proposals and so forth. But, um, the conflict between the legislative and executive branches after Nixon started threatening to uh, not spend the money, uh, not not to fund uh, policies that he thought were or laws that he thought were, you know, in contravention of his, his uh, part. Not crooked enough? Uh, oh, well, there it is. Uh, can you do that? The man was a crook. Oh, not a crook. Um, anyhow, so... In ni- I said it earlier that I would say this, so I want to make, make good on it. Uh, uh, 1974, members objected to then-President Richard Nixon's threat to withhold congressional appropriations for programs that were inconsistent with his policies, a process known as impoundment. Uh, The dispute then led to the enactment of the Congressional Budget and Impoundment Control Act of 1974. And if we skip down to now, um, the Budget Budget Act uh, reasserted Congress's constitutional control over the budget by establishing new procedures, and then it goes on to say... Interesting things that I was going to read. <laughs> wow! All right, uh, here, now, pa- Paul Ryan's the Democrat who, um, uh, sorry, is the Republican uh, representative who put forward a, a comprehensive budget proposal that that overwhelming numbers of Republicans uh, supported and was similarly kind of reviled by an overwhelming number of. Democrats. Funny that. I know. So I'm going to play a little clip from his describing this uh, catastrophic. Uh, Shortfall that's about to happen, or or uh, cliff, long fall. The cliff is usually a long fall. Is it? Yeah. That short, guy. Did you see that guy? Totally different. The, like the twelfth guy in history survived going over the uh, Niagara Falls in a barrel <laughs> the other day. It was wow. like three days ago. Uh, I'll look for that while it's playing. But anyway, here's Paul Ryan, um, the chairman of the committee. I think of the. Well, I'm not going to say the committee until I know for sure. We, you can talk during it. Who, um, me? Here, yeah. Here's Paul. We can both talk. Here's Paul Ryan. How are they going to hear Paul Ryan? Because I'm playing it right now. No, but uh, yesterday, the CBO released its long-term budget outlook. This report throws harsh light on the challenges we face, and it sounds an alarm that too many in Washington have been ignoring for far too long. The federal government will race across a dangerous tipping point this year. According to CBO, total U.S. debt will reach 100% of GDP. Our debt will eclipse the size of our entire economy. Economists who have studied sovereign debt, tell us that letting total debt rise above 90% of GDP creates a, a drag on... Ac- Economists who've studied it. You ever notice that politicians and 
pundits and radio show hosts and everybody, they'll, they'll throw out statistics to support their thing. And they'll say, well, listen, economists this, or will they say... And he just uh, he just did that. Economists who studied the uh, you know anyhow. Well, I, it, that reminds me that I, I have it on pretty good information that about seventy eight percent of all statistics are made up on the spot. Mm-hmm. I think that's right. I think I think twenty five percent of people hear that believe it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep listening to uh, Paul Ryan. Economic growth and intensifies the risk of a debt fueled economic crisis. Other flash drive. The CBO is pieces. candid about the increasing likelihood of this crisis, and the report states, yeah, "quote." Such a crisis would confront policymakers with extremely difficult choices and probably have a very significant negative impact on the country, unquote. This quote demonstrates CBO's flair for the understatement. <laughs> a sudden fiscal crisis would be a complete catastrophe for this country. Families and businesses would bear the full brunt of the painful consequences. If the nation ultimately experienced a panicked run on its debt, Policymakers would be forced to make immediate and painful fiscal adjustments, like the austerity programs that have stoked the riots in Greece. This would mean massive tax increases on working families and steep benefit cuts that hit our most vulnerable citizens the hardest. The CBO is a nonpartisan agency, so it does not take a position on what would be required to prevent this crisis. But we can draw our own conclusions from the evidence in this report. For one thing, This report makes clear that exploding government spending, not insufficient revenue, is driving us toward this crisis point. If we simply keep revenues at their historic revenue or average as a share of GDP, then government spending driven by... Does this sound like triple talk? Well, uh, except for the, the the real earnest concern in his voice. Uh, well, that's the tone. The tone is really important, I think. Right, and he's putting he's definitely putting out the idea. I get the feeling from him that he is uh, truly concerned for the American people, uh, and that he is using the statistics that he has that are nonpartisan uh, at hand uh, to uh, reinforce the argument um, that is generally of his party that the larger the government uh, is, the worse off for the people. Um, so I, you know. Armchair, uh, you know, as just as a as an objective and impartial observer, he really sounds like he cares. And well, of course, he cares. Are you sure he cares? I'm absolutely convinced he cares. I'm mm-hmm. convinced that that a, a preponderance of the people in public life care. That's if not to looking, say that they don't get uh, that they don't get cynical and they don't get uh, you know they don't behave in ways that you know that they don't prioritize money and and certain relationships with certain things over. But you know when it gets right down to it, I think the people would love you know to the extent that they spend a moment you know considering it that for their legacy to have been you know something that was helpful to people. I, you know I don't think that I don't think that Republicans you know I'm a Democrat but I don't I, we're Democrats but I, I don't think that Republicans it's a terrible place to start any conversation to assume that the person's intention is bad so you know I, I what I get oh, when oh, I man. Read, I, let me tell you about the first the very first time I ever learned a dirty word or I saw a bad word in print was uh, cracked magazine you remember cracked well, of course magazine? I do Mad Magazine's uh, I don't know, ugly uh, step cousin give, give me an eyeball on what the FCC says about uh, you, you can know, say whatever you want oh that's fantastic because the very I don't first want time, you to say anything no, you the want very first time that I saw a bad word in print was in Cracked Magazine, circa 1984, something like that. It was uh, an article of, you know, so to speak, uh, of what uh, what people could do for careers later on in their life. And one of the careers listed was politician. And how do you go about becoming a politician? And it said, and I saw it, it said, the fr- well, the first thing you have to do is be a shitty person. <laughs> and wow. uh, it has it has it has yet to prove itself false. I think. Oh, I disagree. 
I know lots of well, that's great. I, I know lots of. It's a good thing we live in a country where we're allowed to disagree. Well, I probably know more politicians than you do. Well, yeah. Yes, you do. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, so my, with my considerable, uh, uh, you know, what's it called? The yeah, <laughs> uh, to anecdotal with my 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 extensive anecdotal. Uh, knowledge that there are a lot of politicians or decent people. Mr. The thing about the thing about Paul Ryan is that he has a crisp, clear, definitive way of speaking. He seems to have a command of the data because if we've learned anything about the CBO, and I, I, I you know, we don't have a total mastery of the uh, video process here, but you know, if I was throwing up on the screen so Ew. that the viewers. Not, throw, not puking. If I was putting up on the screen, if we were putting up on the screen all of the different charts and graphs, and I finally found one that really, really gave you, it was a, it was a supplement. It was a supplement. They had this big report that is impossible to read, and then they have a supplement, and it, it, that, that you just hope that somebody out there knows something about it and has spent enough time and that when they start talking about it, they're not Ferris Bueller. Bueller, Bueller, right. we have, you know what I mean? You want how, somebody. How much is the Congressional Budget Office's budget each year? Well, I've said over 40 million and I've said 48 million. I've said a number of different things. But in the last commercial break, I looked it up and it was 46 point something. That's a whole lot of money. That's a whole lot of, lot of money to spend on, on, on graphs and charts and stuff like that. And uh, that's good. But I, I, part of me thinks that $48 million might go to feed a bunch of people that are hungry in this country. Uh, I, I think it's... Uh, I know... I know what I don't know. <laughs> Was it Rumsfeld? We don't know what we don't know or something? I don't know. So, but I, <laughs> I don't... Uh, I know that there is... I have incredible respect for the somewhere between 250 and 700 minds, uh, depending on whether I believe the former director or what I read on the on the website, uh, who are there, most of whom have advanced degrees, sitting there trying to wrestle with this stuff. Because I think when you're making decisions uh, that about where to allocate the trillions of dollars we take in or however much we take in, it's really good to, to have, I mean, as, as a percentage of the total amount that's being spent, you know, I, I spend a, a good amount of money on my accountant and he's my business manager and we sit down once or twice a year and during those, you know, one or two moments in the year when we decide what we're going to do with our house or our mortgage or what we're going to do with those things, I really want expert guidance. And naturally, and, and I, naturally. and I think in order to have expert guidance in a, in a, uh, you know, federal bureaucracy that is so complicated. You know, I don't know exactly how they spend their money. It would be interesting to uh, to me, if not to the uh, the the one guy who's left, uh, Brett, who's the only guy left listening to us at this point. We love but, you, Brett. But I want to read something that uh, that Ellen uh, Bonacardi sent in. She wrote an email to. Um, uh, Sean Aston Vox Populi at gmail.com. She wrote, Hi, Sean. First, I'm really enjoying the show. I hope it continues to grow and thrive. Me too. Second, I know it's short notice. You won't likely have a chance to bring it up, but the House recently voted to eliminate funding for the Census Bureau's Economic Census and American Community Service, a survey, American Community Survey, which replaced the census long form. Both of these are key statistical surveys that agencies like the CBO use to produce their reports. And then she provides a great link. So, there's a lot going on at the old CBO. A um, lot, of, lot of numbers crunching. I, for one, think that they do a really important service for us. They provide a really important function in our in our government, and, I, and I'm happy for us to spend that money um, the, the, in their direction. If they can, uh, if we can get them to tighten their belt a little bit, that'd be great too. But I think the when Paul Ryan 
demonstrates a mastery over the data, it it really gives people a, a good feeling, mm-hmm. a feeling of confidence. Sure. So what I heard in that last clip that we played of him was him say this new report of the CBO clearly, you know, illustrates that raising revenue isn't as important as cutting taxes. That's what I think I just heard the guy say. And I don't know, you know, if that's a legitimate reading of that. I, I you know, I think you could probably, inc- you know, um, there's a lot that goes into it, a lot of follow-on effects from if you increase revenue by raising taxes, how that suppresses wages, this kind of thing. Um, I think that that we're better off as a citizenry if we have some agreement about what the numbers are. And what happens is there's there's allowed to be this huge confusion with um, the president's – I also misspoke on that one too. The the Office of Budget Management, to the best of my knowledge, actually – is the White House. Yeah, the Office of uh, Management and Budget, the OMB, is the White House uh, budget group, uh, you know, office that, (laughs) the Office of Budget Management is the office. My point is, they deal with their set of numbers, the CBO deals with its set of numbers, the Treasury, as Brett was saying, puts out its, you know, what actually is happening instead of projections. It's an awful lot of information for us to manage, and I think the more we are able to feel like we know our government a little bit better, I now know where the building. Were you able to put that slide up? I now know where that building is. I could walk there from mm-hmm. Rayburn, yes. you know, on the hill. I could walk to. I could walk there, and I now I know somebody who talked to me, and and I feel good about it. Uh, and so I would encourage other people to at least for a second just go to cbo.gov and, and just look at their website. It's very pretty, very well presented website. Uh, seems, you know. Pleasing to manipulate the data. Your, I want, your but, tax dollars at work. There it is. That is that's that's what you know. That's what yeah. we're that's what we're paying for. But it's fun. It's like a water slide for the for the analytical mind. Um, all yeah, right, so I want to take absolute... a moment to do something personal, which is to talk about uh, uh, Grandpa Schroeder, uh, Martin Schroeder. Grandpa Schroeder was born in 1921. Just passed this last week. Um, this week. Um, Monday, actually, the 21st. He was interestingly, as my wife's grandfather, uh, Laporte, Indiana is where he's from. He, he died in the same bed he was born in, or at least the same house he was born in after 91 years of life, a uh, little house next to the railroad tracks in Indiana. Um, and I, I got to know him for over the last 20 years uh, that I've been married to his granddaughter, and he, we had such good conversations. Um, one of my favorites was I was running around campaigning for uh, then Senator Clinton and then uh, for Joe Donnelly, who's going to be a guest on the show, I believe, next week, uh, who's now, who is a congressman and now is running for Senate in Indiana. Uh, a Democrat for Senate in Indiana should be a good interview. And uh, and also Jill Long Thompson, who's running for governor, lost that race. But we met at Christo's uh, for dinner, a place where Grandpa probably had four trillion. Uh, the only number bigger than the, the debt is how many dinners grandpa had at Christos <laughs> and uh, and we were sitting there and, and I told him I was asking about Joe Donnelly and you know he said that he liked him and 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 we were talking about politics a little bit and, and he said well you know do they do they still think they know more than us that was his that was his phrase for me about politics do they do they still think they know more than us mm. uh, you know because I sort of want them to know a little bit more than me but but grandpa was saying that uh, it's important that they don't think they do, that they're actually representing 
us and that we're pretty smart in our own right as a people. He served in the Second World War. He worked at Al, uh, Alice Chalmers for years as a uh, an assembler. Um, he survived by his two daughters, my uh, mother-in-law, Robin, and Sue Ann. Both of them are married. Um, got a lot of grandkids. I could read through the whole list. But just, uh, just a moment to say thank you for your service, Grandpa. I love you. And it was... It was um, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for the influence that you had on my life in, in uh, a lot of ways. He was big on baptism. We sort of worked that one out, but that's a, that's a horse of a different color. So, uh, Mackie, do you have anything else that you want to say about, not necessarily about Crampo, but about our uh, our little show here about the Office of Budget Management? Anything? No. Come on, <laughs> offer me a thought. Oh, well, death on the... Uh, I, uh, I look forward to... Uh, to doing this more because um, you know we get we get better at it uh, as we as we carry on, but it seems as though um, in in just the the few shows that you've done here, people uh, some people uh, are are responding to it, and that is nice. Uh, I think the um, idea to introduce um, civil discourse is a wonderful, wonderful Shut thing, up! and encouraging oh, <laughs> encouraging people to uh, to seek knowledge, to 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 look go you know dig after the information that um, comprises the government, which. Some would say is in charge. Well, uh, is, is a very uh, valuable thing to do. So uh, good on you uh, for doing. You know, that. I was, uh, thanks, brother. So I was I was looking at the. Um, I wasn't finished. Go on. <laughs> no, go ahead. No, the the uh, uh, there's the uh, iTunes University or iTunes University where you can go on and you can listen to classic lectures from you know professors at Harvard and Yale and all over the world, Oxford, and, and it's free. You just go on there and you listen to them. And I was thinking about our our podcast is is a, uh, available in that same kaleidoscope of, of uh, sounds for people. What I want to do is what you said, make it civil. I want to offer information. I think I can be a little bit, you know, my preparation, I get so excited with all the information there is that I think I need to be a little bit clearer about it. And I think... Uh, Oh, I was going to play one. Wait, are oh, you going to play one? I'm going to play one. I know. I got. I want to play something out here. Wow. This is one Mac, Mac chose. We got a little Mac's bit got of good a, taste in music. Uh, get, get. Thank you. I know you're not. Uh, you're a little under the weather today, but you did a good job. Seriously. Pulling, uh, pulling everything. Well done, Kent. Posting yeah, stuff you. up on the boards. Uh, anyhow, I want to provide information, but the thing that makes this show good is if people contribute. If when I, I didn't do a very good job this week of promoting the week's topic on on Twitter, so uh, getting people to kind of pre-discuss it and, and think about it and come to the table with a with a, you know a debate or whatever with with their own thoughts or ideas or, or take on things. So I'll try and do a better job of that next week. We'll figure out what the topic's going to be. We'll probably make it something a little uh, a little glitzier uh, than the OMB, even though I I personally think that. Uh, the OMB's kind of sexy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, here's our song, playing us out. Thank you very much, everybody, on the Toad Hop Network. I'm Sean Astin, host of Vox Populi, voice of the occasionally interested people. Here we go. I can oh, start Lord, to talk. won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a color TV? Dialing for dollars is trying to find me. I wait for delivery each day until three so oh lord won't you buy me 
a color TV. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? I'm counting on you, Lord. Please don't let me down. Prove that you love me and buy the next round. Oh, Lord, won't you buy me a night on the town? Everybody, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz? My friends all drive Porsches. I must make amends. Worked hard all my lifetime. No help from my friends. So, oh, Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes Benz. You're listening to the Toad Hop Network, radio worth watching. Hey, Heidi and Frank here from HeidiandFrank.com. Hooters is open late every single night. Late night happy hour starts at 10 p.m. and the kitchen doesn't close until midnight. And keep in mind, it's Hooters swimsuit pageant time. All contests start at 10 p.m. With all beers, is $2 and $4. And May 12th is the West Coast Regional Swimsuit Pageant at Icon LA Ultra Lounge. And we're going to be there. We're going to be judging. Mm-hmm. It was so hard last year. What? Judging. Oh, right, right, right. So check out WestCoastHooters.com for contest dates and details. 